Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. You can find out more by visiting the website johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. Visit the website lifeinnaples.net. We have a terrific guest for today's show, including Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. We'll continue our discussion about executive powers, including executive orders. Andrew Jopper is a professor. He's also author of Josephus of Oz. We'll visit with Andrew and Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture, author of several books. His latest is How Everything Happened, Including Us. It is December the 9th, and on this day in 1992, 1,800 United States Marines arrived in Mogadishu, Somalia. The spearhead of a multinational force aimed at restoring order in a conflict-ridden country. Following centuries of colonial rule by countries including Portugal, Britain, and Italy, Mogadishu became the capital of an independent Somalia in 1960. Less than 10 years later, a military group led by Major General Bayer seized power and declared Somalia a socialist state. A drought in the mid-70s combined with an unsuccessful rebellion by ethnic Somalis in the neighboring province of Ethiopia to deprive many of food and shelter. By 1981, close to 2 million of the country's inhabitants were homeless, though a, a peace accord was signed with Ethiopia in 1988. Fighting increased between the rival clans with Somalia in, within Somalia. And in January 1991, Bayer was forced to flee the capital. Over the next 23 months, Somalia's civil war uh, killed some 50,000 folks, including 300,000 died of starvation as the United Nations peacekeeping forces struggled in vain to restore order and provide relief amid the chaos of war. In early December 1992, outgoing U.S. President George H.W. Bush sent the, uh, a contingent of Marines to Mogadishu as part of the mission dubbed Operation Restore Hope, backed by U.S. troops, international aid workers, and who were able to restore food distribution and other humanitarian operations. Sporadic violence continued, including the murder of 24 U.N. soldiers from Pakistan in 1993. As a result, the UN authorized the arrest of uh, General Mohammed Adid, uh, leader of one of the rebel clans. On October the 3rd, 1993, during an attempt to make the arrest, rebels shot down two U.S. Army Black Hawk helicopters and killed 18 Americans. As horrified TV viewers watched images of the bloodshed, including footage of Adid's supporters dragging the body of one dead soldier through the streets of Mogadishu, cheering, President Bill Clinton immediately gave the order for all American soldiers to withdraw from Somalia by March 31, 1994. Other Western nations followed suit when the last UN peacekeepers left in 1995, ending a mission that had cost more than $2 billion. Mogadishu still lacked a functioning government. A ceasefire accord signed in Kenya in 2002 failed to put a stop to the violence, though a new parliament was convened in 2004. Again, another object lesson about getting involved in uh, foreign affairs outside of our jurisdiction. Why are we in Somali, uh, Somalia? Mogadishu. My goodness. Well, of course, it was UN. It was UN uh, sanctioned, but irrespective. What good could we have done? Well, uh, the FDH, uh, the Florida Department of Health, reported 107 new cases of COVID-19 and four additional deaths in Collier County on Tuesday. Moving uh, average, seven-day average for new cases is 164 through Monday. That's double the 82 cases on November the 1st, but a lot less than the 221 cases on uh, July the 13th. The county hospitals, according to data from Florida Agencies of Healthcare Administration, have plenty of beds. Uh, there's four fewer patients there than they reported at approximately the same time on Monday. Four fewer patients. So more cases, uh, but not more people hospitalized. And again, these deaths haven't necessarily occurred uh, this week. They may have occurred in November. President Donald Trump on Tuesday signed an executive order giving American priority 
and Americans' access to vaccines uh, for the Chinese Communist Party virus, which caused the COVID-19. The order says that we must ensure that Americans have priority access to COVID-19 vaccines developed in the United States or procured by the United States government. It's the policy of the United States, uh, said the executive order. So I think that's great. Uh, Americans will have first access to the uh, COVID-19 vaccine. Keep in mind that uh, members of the uh, so-called uh, Biden administration wanted to distribute it around worldwide before getting it to the United States. Crazy. Wow. So the lawsuit against General Michael Flynn has been dropped. Judge Emmett Sullivan ordered that the case be dismissed as moot. There's little standing once the president issued a pardon to Flynn, but boy, I'll tell you that this uh, Emmett Sullivan held on for dear life to this case. I guess this gives uh, Flynn now total ability to speak out on some of the issues that are important to him. I think he'll do a great job of that. Well, the big news, of course, the state of Texas filed a lawsuit directly with the U.S. Supreme Court shortly before midnight on Mondays, challenging the election procedures in Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin on the grounds that they violate the Constitution. And then Alabama joined, uh, Louisiana joined, Arkansas, Florida, Kentucky, Mississippi, South Carolina, and South Dakota. They all joined in the suit, which is uh, great news. Texas argues that the states violated the electors clause of the Constitution because they made changes to the voting rules and procedures through the through the courts or through executive actions, but not through the state legislatures. Additionally, Texas argues that if there were differences in voting rules and procedures in different counties within the states, it violated the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause. And finally, Texas argues that there were voting irregularities in these states as a result of the above. Texas is asking the Supreme Court to order the states to allow the legislatures to appoint their electors, which would be an outstanding result. The lawsuit says uh, certain officials in the defendant states presented the pandemic as a justification for ignoring state laws regarding absentee and mail-in voting. The defendant states flooded uh, their citizenry with uh, tens of millions of ballots, applications, ballots, and uh, derogation to uh, statutory controls as to how they are lawfully received, evaluated, and counted. Whether well-intentioned or not, these unconstitutional acts had the same Uniform effect, they made the 2020 election less secure in the defendant states. These changes are inconsistent with relevant state laws and were made by non-legislative entities without any consent by the state legislatures. The acts of these officials thus directly violated the Constitution. I think that's pretty direct, isn't it? The case presents a question of law. Did the defendant states violate the electoral clause by taking non-legislative actions to change the rules? Well, I certainly think they did. A lot of strength in this case, and uh, this is exactly how it should come together. Uh, there was some uh, discussion that the Pennsylvania case had been uh, dismissed by the Supreme Court. Well, this is not true. Uh, Tuesday night, uh, Jenna Ellis, who's an attorney Trump, tweeted out that the injunction was dismissed, but the Pennsylvania case is still active. The Supreme Court only denied emergency injunctive relief. The Supreme Court did not decline to hear the Pennsylvania case. They denied the request for a court order ordering Pennsylvania election before hearing the case. So the case, in my view, the best outcome for this at all, for all, would be for this case to be tied in with the Texas case and used as evidence for what's going on. I, I think this is a great outcome right now. And by the way, Senator Ted Cruz has announced if the Supreme Court decides to take up the Pennsylvania mail uh, ballot case, and it looks like they will, along with the Texas case, he, he uh, will make oral arguments on behalf of petitioners, which is great news because he's argued eight cases in front of the Supreme Court. He has the experience, and I think it would be a great compliment to Giuliani and to Jenna and the others who are uh, on the uh, team for uh, Trump. Well, and that's not all. There's other cases. The Arizona Supreme Court has agreed to hear a legal challenge to mail-in ballots in Maricopa County, filed by the state's Republican Party chairwoman Kelly Ward. Maricopa County is the largest county in Arizona, with a little over half of the state's population. It's a home to state capital of Phoenix. The county went Democratic in 2020 presidential election for the first time since Harry S. Truman carried Arizona in 1948. 
Winning Maricopa, Joe Biden was nearly able to carry the state by less than 11,000 votes. An Arizona lower court has already dismissed Ward's suit on Friday, but the state's Supreme Court agreed to hear the case after Ward claimed the irregularities were found in sample ballots that she was allowed to review. Now, the justices on the Arizona Supreme Court are appointed by the governor for a list of approved candidates drawn up by a bipartisan commission. All seven justices have been appointed by Republican governors, with current Governor Doug Ducey having appointed five of them. So uh, this is all uh, very good news, and that case continues as well. So this is a big week right now for the uh, Trump administration and for the election. And again, uh, it's not so much about Trump, it's about having fair elections. Every, uh, every ballot that is legal should be counted. Those that are illegal should be dismissed. Lots of news about China getting influence. <laughs> the most this Axios apparently has conducted a year-long investigation about China's involvement in our United States government. The irony is Eric Stillwall, Swalwell, that's his name, Eric Swalwell, of course he's a representative who accused uh, Trump of Russia, Russia, Russia. Well, apparently he had a romantic engagement with these, this China, Chinese woman, uh, Fang, and uh, we'll have more about that. We don't have time to talk about it right now, but it's so interesting. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The, the website is lifeinnaples.net. Okay, coming up, we're going to visit with Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harton, the host of the Bob Harton Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. Hey, a little shout out to Lulabee's Diner located there in the Green Tree Shopping Center. Do a great job for breakfast and lunch. And now you can get Uber Eats and get takeout at Lulabee's Diner. I hope you patronize them. They support St. Matthew's House in such a big way. Coming up, we're going to visit with Andrew Joppa. Right now we have with us Bob Levy. He's an author. He's a constitutional scholar, and he's a chairman of a terrific organization, the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure being with you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute. 
We're a libertarian think tank headquartered in Washington, D.C. Free markets, private property, securing individual rights, and limited government. C-A-T-O dot O-R-G on the web. Terrific organization. So, Bob, for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the executive powers. And uh, let's continue our conversation about executive orders because <laughs> they've been used a lot in the last couple of administrations. How do president's current policies compare with past statements about executive power? Well, it's it's kind of instructive to hear what uh, Obama said about uh, executive overreach. Um, back in 2011, he said this, and this is a quote, with respect to the notion that the president can just suspend deportation through executive order, that's just not the case. To ignore congressional mandates would not conform with my appropriate role as president. Mm. Of course, he then went ahead and did exactly what he said he can't do. And then two years later, he said, if, if, if this was an issue that the president could do unilaterally, I would have done it a long time ago. The way our system works is Congress has to pass legislation. The president then gets an opportunity to sign it and implement it. So those were the words. Those were not, however, uh, the actions, although I must say that it's not just Obama that uh, has arrogated power into itself. It's virtually every president has done so. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I think I even recall Truman uh, closing down the steel mills or something like that back in the day. So uh, He tried to. The Supreme Court put a stop to it, but it is true that he tried. <laughs> yeah, so, so what can Congress do to constrain presidential abuse of executive powers? Well, there's some alternatives. Uh, first, of course, the, the one party can wait until the other party wins the presidency, and uh, uh, the problem with that solution is it's reversible. <laughs> can, mm-hmm. It can happen quite the opposite. Uh, second, you can try to force the president's hand using funding uh, as leverage, but of course the Senate, at least now, uh, has the filibuster power, uh, and the president, of course, could veto any bill that omitted Funding and that might lead to a government shutdown. And the, of course, the Republicans found out in the past that uh, they would get blamed uh, for such a thing by the mainstream media. Uh, the third possibility is that the Senate majority could invoke this so-called uh, nuclear option and change the filibuster rules so that uh, you can pass legislation in the Senate with 51 votes. The Democrats did that uh, for presidential appointments, and then the except for the Supreme Court. The Republicans went ahead and did it for the Supreme Court. Of course, that means it's a risky tactic, because when the minority party regains power, uh, then uh, they they have uh, considerably more power without uh, the filibuster than they would with it. And, of course, the president still has this uh, veto power. And then, fourth, you could refuse to do things like confirm new judges, uh, unless uh, uh, the president kowtowed. But, again, that's a, a risky uh, proposition. For one thing, you want judge vacancies to be filled, and for another, you have the risk of the other party regaining power and doing the same thing in reverse. So all of these alternatives are available, but none of them are really quite uh, adequate. The real solution is for the Supreme Court to rein in uh, the use of executive orders. And the other is for the Congress and to do its job. <laughs> well, yes, exactly right. Yeah, it's just so frustrating. I know we all get frustrated when nothing's done and we see important issues, but the, the founders got it right. Let's make it difficult to pass this stuff because, you know, it's hard to undo. It's so, so interesting. So wasn't there a court case of Congress's use of power of the purse? Yeah, the, uh, the Obamacare, one of the Obamacare cases, this was the House of Representatives versus uh, Burwell. Uh, and they argued, uh, the House argued that Obama unconstitutionally used funds that Congress had had not appropriated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, the, and the use of the funds was to, uh, you may recall, subsidize these insurance companies for helping um, modest income and low income insureds uh, with their deductibles and their co-payments. So the administration asked Congress to appropriate the money, uh, but Congress didn't do so. And then the administration claimed uh, existing authority to use a separate account uh, that had been established for another purpose. But, of course, the Constitution says, uh, and this is a direct quote, no money shall be drawn from the Treasury but in consequence of appropriations um, made by uh, by law. 
So on the when that got to court, uh, the the refusal of Congress to appropriate funds uh, did not, said the court, give the administration license to unilaterally order the payment of billions of dollars uh, to insurance companies. Later, when Trump uh, took over, he stopped those payments to his mm-hmm. credit, and then of course he dropped the lawsuit because it was no longer uh, of any consequence. So it never got past uh, the lower court. Uh, level, but it did rein in the power uh, of the president. Uh, then, now, that was to Trump's credit. Of course, he attempted to do the same thing with respect to the funding for the for the wall. Yeah. In fact, uh, he's been successful with that, and he just uh, simply said, okay, if you're not going to fund it, I'll just dip into, you know, I guess it was a defense uh, budget. To, uh, yeah, some to- military funds. Yeah, that's still pending in court. <laughs> Of course, it might be moot before long. <laughs> yeah, the wall will be built. So uh, let's move to selective enforcement of federal laws. If you got time, Bob, I'd like to just sure. dis- discuss these. Uh, you've discussed enforcement of laws not passed by Congress, but what about the flip side? We see it with marijuana and all kinds of things. Non-enforcement of laws that were passed by Congress. Yeah, again, the best illustration, uh, I keep saying this about so many of these issues we discuss. The best illustration is uh, Obamacare, uh, the employer mandate. It was originally set to begin in 2014, um, but by executive edict, it was delayed until 2015, and then again until 2016. Frankly, it wouldn't have been a bad idea if it had been not just delayed, but eliminated. Mm -hmm. But clearly, the delay was uh, illegal. The mandate, you, you may remember, required required all businesses with more than 50 full-time employees to pay uh, uh, to provide health insurance or else pay a penalty. So the, the pertinent question, of course, is where did Congress, uh, did the Constitution give the president authority to revise federal statutes by mm-hmm. delaying their effective date? And the, the answer is nowhere. Uh, yet that's exactly what happened. And the, the same applies to other uh, Obamacare revisions over, over the years uh, the president unilateral, unilaterally uh, imposed a delay in canceling policies that didn't meet minimum acceptable standards, yeah. and, uh, and and he had this hardship exemption uh, for people who lost their insurance that he also uh, delayed. And the the president is not supposed to um, um, uh, change the 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 very nature of the law. He can change priorities. He can change some policies, but not dates. He has no line-item veto, and yet he still went ahead because he couldn't get congressional approval. So last one on this topic, Bob. This one that really sticks in my craw because I'll never forget this when this happened. What about the special subsidies under Obamacare for congressional staff and members? Aren't those part of the law? I mean, <laughs> just congressmen were complaining, I can't afford to fight. <laughs> right. Yeah. Before, you know, Obamacare, uh, the Congress folks and their staffs, <clears throat> had 70% of their health insurance underwritten by taxpayers. Uh, but the, the voters were outraged, rightly so, that, a, that Congress should be exempt from the insurance exchanges under Obamacare that a lot of other Americans had to use. So the final text of Obamacare required Congress and staffers to get their insurance on the exchanges. Yeah. And that meant they were going to lose their taxpayer-funded uh, subsidies, which averaged about five to $10,000 per year. A lot for a staffer, maybe not for a congressman. So then the president directed the office of of, uh, uh, OPM to enact a rule saying that the federal government could still subsidize uh, congressional health care premiums. So, you know, I don't take a position on whether making up for these lost subsidies was the right thing or the wrong thing, but it's not trivial. And uh, members of Congress, you know, they earn close to 200000 annually. A lot of their staffers earn uh, six figures, and yet they're going to get subsidies up to $10,000 a family. Justified or not, uh, those subsidies were not part of the law that Congress passed. They were imposed by executive uh, order unilaterally without Congress. Yeah, and it would have been a lot better if they had to live with the inconvenience of the law. That would perhaps motivate them to get something done with regard to the off what I consider to be a very bad law, Obamacare. Indeed. Bob, I just genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. Good to be with you. Thank you so much. Cato.org, C-A-T-O.org is the website. 
All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Andrew Jopp, a professor and author of Josephus of Oz. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the Intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Shore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgrowing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. I proudly serve on the board. One of the programs is to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, especially after the pandemic. And you can find out more by visiting thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Larry Bell. Right now we have with us Professor Andrew Joppa. He's also an author. His book is Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Andy. So a lot to talk about right now. By the way, you uh, sent me an interesting story and uh, showing the consequences and connection of almost everything that happens in life. In fact, uh, you were born as a result of uh, what happened on December the 7th. No, No doubt about it in my mind, and I think in reality. Uh, you know, as an academic, I teach systems thinking, and one of the most interesting components of systems thinking, as you just referred to, is that everything that happens in a system affects everything else in that system, and forever. Uh, so I used to tell this story about Pearl Harbor Day, December 7th, 1941. My, my mother and father at that point were casually dating. There was no intent to be married, as best I can tell. Uh, when the attack occurred on December 16th, um, they got married. Shortly thereafter, my father enlisted. He was scheduled to be shift, shipped off to uh, Texas in February of 1942, and I was born in October of 1942. So I was my, my father's going away present to my mother when he was leaving for basic <laughs> training. Uh, no doubt I was born because of that. Now, subsequent to that, since I exist and I've taught hundreds and hundreds of courses, and each of those students was at least marginally affected by, by who I am and what I am, uh, and that goes on even at this exact moment, Bob, as I speak right now. Yep. Uh, that event, December 7th, 1941, is affecting your listeners. So uh, it's, it's an amazing thing to consider. And as you alluded to exactly, Bob, everything that happens in a system affects everything else in, it, in the system forever. So, so here we are right now, Bob. Yeah, it was so interesting. Let's, let's see if we can't apply that to the corrupt elections that just occurred. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, uh, well, you know, there's, there's so many things going on right now. Um, it's hard to get a focus. I, I would suggest that the, the things that probably should be brought into our conversation are the, uh, the rejection of the Pennsylvania suit initiated by, uh, by Congressman Kelly and uh, Alito uh, essentially uh, refused to take that up. Um, if I may, if I may, Andy, just to step in, actually, that's not the case. They simply they simply refuse to act immediately on it. They uh, will hear the case, but I think their plan is to back that information in that case up into the Texas case. So it wasn't refused. That's that's exactly what I was going to allude to, Bob. That uh, you know, this is not a a dead issue at this point. Um, But again, I think the Texas case ultimately will become. Uh, the the, uh, the determining factor as to the intents and, and uh, uh, willingness, I guess, of the Supreme Court to take action as it pertains to this. Uh, for your audience, if they're not familiar with the with the Texas lawsuit initiated by uh, Attorney General Ken Paxton of Texas, uh, it was a suit filed against other states: Georgia, Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, uh, challenging the the legality of the process by which. Uh, votes were tabulated and the uh, elimination of the state legislature as a determining force or factor in that process. Uh Uh, What the uh, Texas suit alleges is that since Texas voters are, and by the way, this is part of a a systems thinking process, since Texas voters are directly affected uh, by the votes that happen in other states as part of a, a total voting system, uh, that Texas has standing in this case, uh, and they're looking for the uh, the Supreme Court to act. If the Supreme Court acts, uh, as best we can tell, what it will result in is to put the uh, choice of the selectors in the hands of the state legislatures. And so if that happens, then I think we're looking at an election that uh, would go really back down to about a 235 to 235 or something in that area uh, electoral count. And that would then get kicked into the House of Representatives. So uh, I'm getting way ahead of the process, but that's how it would probably unfold. Uh, First of all, if it is uh, heard by the Supreme Court and if it is acted on, as all legality should suggest, it should be acted on. Yeah, I would agree with that. In fact, uh, what I see is that they're basically the remedy they're seeking is to uh, uh, take uh, take away the vote and, and push the election and the selection of the electors to these various state houses and state legislatures, which would require those folks to put on their big boy pants, by the way, which I think that it would be a a fairly, I think that would be a remedy, you know, to cancel the election, to to eliminate certain votes and so forth. Very difficult for the Supreme Court to do under the circumstances. The remedy they're seeking, I think, is very appropriate and will put a lot of pressure on these state legislatures. I mean, there, there's no doubt. I mean, this uh, suit does not deal directly with fraud per se, but only process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I think if we look at the, the constitutional requirement as to the role of the state legislatures, it certainly has been violated. Now, again, the big boy pants argument is one that it must be understood, Bob. There is a, a tremendous level of fear, certainly at the uh, the uh, the local level, there's no doubt about that. Whether or not that is infectious at the Supreme Court level, I I I, I don't know. Um, I, I have no way of understanding whether or not the Supreme Court would be willing to act in such a manner, which is perfectly legal and perfectly appropriate and perfectly necessary. But whether they will, that that waits to be seen, Bob. That's exactly uh, the case, Andy, and uh, it'll be so interesting to see. You know, they I'm quite certain that uh, the Supreme Court is, is somewhat sheltered from all the violence and the threats and so forth. I don't think members of the Supreme Court would uh, end up having those types of threats, but if they acted, my concern is what happens to local legislators with the threats that they might experience, you know, family members burning down your house, those types of things are not, they're not, they, these things have happened in the past, and uh, my concern is it would happen again. Well, there's no doubt about it. I mean, people like uh, uh, myself and you and, and most people in, in our persuasion are, are fully aware of the details that have surrounded this, this election. But if you talk to the average liberal, they have no understanding right. uh, of exactly what's been, what's been challenged. Uh, this has all been uh, uh, postured as only a, uh, a wild conspiracy theory of people on the right with 
they have no understanding of the details. So if the Supreme Court moves in that direction, uh, this will blindside the uh, majority of the liberal population. And, you know, we, we've seen what the uh, liberal people, the Antifa people, the Black Lives Matter people are capable of doing in the streets of America and in direct confrontation with uh, with other Americans. So I, I have no idea how it will play out. Um, I'm not optimistic or pessimistic in this case, Bob. I, I, all I can say is what I already offered, that it should happen well, I would, at the Supreme Court level. Right. And the second observation I make is there, there are certainly considerations and concerns about those threats of violence, but they have nothing to do with the case at hand. They need to make the right decision, irrespective of those concerns, in my opinion. Andy, I want to take a little break here. Can you stick around? I will be here, Bob. All right. We're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity, maximize your tax deduction, support your favorite charity, and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs, and the net revenue generated by NADC goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government doesn't provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donations Center at 692-9840 or visit the website nadckids.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best and building a brand new and performing arts Center in downtown Naples. You can find out more by visiting the website, golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Larry Bell. Right now, we continue the conversation with Andy Joppa. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Always good to be with you, Bob. Andy, you brought up something that was kind of interesting. It's the Patrick Basham analysis for voting data. Maybe you could tell us about it. Well, Patrick Basham made a big splash just a few days ago when he appeared on the Mark Levin show. He, uh, he was writing originally for The Spectator and presented a, uh, a set of, uh, of, of informations uh, that completely document statistically the absolute impossibility, if I might, of a, uh, of a, uh, of a Biden win. Well, now, let me uh, back up on the word Im- impossibility. Uh, Basham said that the Biden win was not impossible, but totally implausible. Now, the average uh, reader doesn't understand what not impossible means. Not impossible means literally not impossible. For example, it's not impossible for someone to win 10 national lotteries in a row. Right. But of course, that implausibility is, is, is so dramatic that it could, could not really occur in reality. And that's exactly what Basham was saying. Although not technically impossible, the win is totally implausible. Uh, if we look at the non-polling metrics that, uh, that Basham supplied, uh, every one of them supporting a, a Trump win, perhaps even a Trump landslide, for all of those metrics to have been wrong, every single one of them would have created odds. They estimated, and I, I have no idea whether it's a valid number, but it's going to be a big number, estimated at quadrillion to one. I don't even yeah. know what a quadrillion is, Bob. Yeah. It's a big number, though, a huge uh, uh, implausibility uh, that would be in reality, uh, not really something that we could ever see uh, occur. Uh, if we look at some of these things, uh, Basham refers to the the fact that, uh, for example, these are just examples, Bob, that uh, Biden had the, the lowest county win total of any uh, of any president that, or a potential president that ever ran an election. He only won 17% of the American counties. Mm-hmm. If we look at one dramatic implausibility in the Georgia vote, uh, with 80% approximately of the vote in and Trump ahead, the next 53 batches 
of votes that came in, 53 batches, all showed exactly the same numbers. 50.05% for Biden, 49.95% for Trump. Every single batch had exactly the same numbers. Mm -hmm. If we look at all of the information that, that Basham supplied, it was, uh, it was extensive, it was deep, it was well-documented. Uh, the potential of a, of a Biden win uh, would, would enter into, and uh, in my blog that I published, enter into the near miraculous. So if my uh, memory serves me, because I don't have this in front of me, but I think this type of information is actually, uh, there's a history for including it uh, to be successful in court. In other words, it's, it would be a consideration for the Supreme Court, for example, in this case. Well, there's, there's no doubt that it, it would fall into uh, the category somewhat of circumstantial evidence, but circumstantial evidence in abundance, as this is, uh, can certainly document uh, guilt or innocence, as the case may be. Right. Uh, so Basham's case is, is well made. Uh, uh, Mark Levin uh, was so taken by it, he gave it tremendous levels of support, and uh, Levin is not easily easily moved to a, a support position like that. Right. Uh, but Basham's comments and information was so extensive, uh, so uh, so uh, inspective of the of the election that there's no doubt, and in my mind at this point, and I think in most people who have followed this closely, as you and I have, there was no doubt in my mind that this election was stolen from President Donald Trump. Uh, well, I certainly agree with that. Now we have the uh, specter of uh, the senatorial races coming up, actually in January. I think uh, early voting starts on December the fourteenth. Are they going to use the same? I mean, uh, the, what they did was illegal. This is it's, uh, Georgia should be part of that suit in uh, that taken by Texas with the Supreme Court. Are they going to allow the the same type of activity they had in the in the presidential election? You know, I, I've been uh, in trying to find out a definitive answer on that. As best I can tell, the answer is is yes. Mm. Um, they've apparently allowed, and I'm again, I can't get definitive information on this allowed Stacey Abrams to harvest votes while no one else can. I don't know if that's true. Uh, but again, it's very hard to get definitive information in terms right. of what's happening. Right. Uh, Governor Kemp uh, seems to be a strange lad in, in, that, in that gubernatorial position. Uh, but I think your, your, your comment is, is the one that many of us are making. Are they going to allow that same system that uh, to, the, to any analysis was fraudulent, at least to a certain extent, and probably to a large extent, uh, to be the same one that's used in the in the uh, Georgia runoff. Yeah. Uh, it does start, as you indicated, on December fourteenth, uh, the, uh, the early voting. It goes all the way to the final uh, in-person voting day on January fifth. Now, why you need you know that length of time again uh, to deal with this, especially when the uh, the 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 guru of all this—that's uh, Anthony Fauci has essentially said that voting in person is not a problem, and yet they are going to persist, apparently, with the mail-in and, and absentee balloting. Yeah, well, we can only hope that, uh, for example, all the things that occurred in Georgia, and there were many, you saw the videotape, I'm sure, the, of the votes being pulled out from under the... the I think, did that happen in Georgia? Didn't I get confused with yes, that? Yes, so That, uh, you know, uh, hopefully there'll be uh, safeguards in place to prevent that type of thing and allow, for example, a member of each party to inspect each vote as it should be in, in order to get to a, a, a legal outcome for this thing. Well, I'd like to believe that. But again, when I look, and there are Republicans at camp and the, uh, the Secretary of State, um, they've seen, and both have a, a long history uh, of involvement with with uh, Dominion. Yeah. Uh, so again, I, I can't make any dramatic claims about their their bias in this direction, but certainly there's, there seems to be an implication that they have uh, chosen for financial reasons to support the Dominion system, and they're not going to expose that their long history uh, in that process financially uh, at this point. So I... Um, I, I'm not optimistic about yeah. the integrity of the, the runoff vote in, in Georgia. And at this point, uh, if uh, President uh, Trump cannot prevail, uh, then the future of America, and this has been cited many times, so this is not a surprise to anyone, the future of America will ride on the results of that uh, Senate runoff in, in Georgia, Bob. For, I mean, it, it, just to articulate some of the concerns, it would be, you know, getting it, getting rid of the uh, the uh, nuclear option, uh, allowing for 51 votes to, for example, carry this vote in the Senate on all issues, and that would include 
making uh, Washington, D.C. a state. That would include, for example, making Puerto Rico a state. That would include uh, packing the Supreme Court up to 13, 15 members. Who knows? Uh, then, and then, and, and legalizing all those, uh, I'm guessing it's up to 20 million now, of people, the illegal uh, aliens that are currently in the United States. I mean, it would have a dramatic effect on the future. That it's, we'd never recover from that. You see, here I am trying to be optimistic, and then you hit me with all those pieces of information. Those are obvious truths. I mean, there's even a possibility of the subdividing of California into multiple states, uh, each with a, uh, a Democrat majority, so oh, as to point, create eh? more, more, Senate, uh, more senators. So, yeah. you know, the, uh, the implications of a, a full government control uh, by the Democrats, House, Senate, um, um, the presidency, and of course, by packing the courts, the Supreme Court and the federal courts, uh, will in fact, I believe, guarantee that no Republican will ever be elected president again. And, and certainly the, uh, the ideologies that will prevail will be those of the Democrat left. Uh, I think we saw an early example of that. I had highlighted that in one of my blogs in terms of Facebook, indicating that they're scarcely going to look at, at, at uh, bigoted comments or hate comments directed at white males. Uh, right now, white males are the most maligned group in America, and if the Democrats prevail, uh, they will almost cease to exist unless they yield to all of the ideologies of the left. And I think we're going to see more and more of that kind of pressure uh, existing within the American culture. Uh, and as that happens, I think all of the remnants will uh, of, of true conservatism are going to be limited at first and then eventually wiped out over the long run. Yeah, well, a couple of comments. Uh, first of all, for uh, Andy's columns, you've mentioned them a couple of times. I just posted one uh, last night uh, that Andy wrote. They're so interesting. I don't post all of them. That's my fault. I, I wish I did. I'm trying to do better in the future. But also, in addition to that, let's keep in mind that we have Sidney Powell's efforts and they're separate cases. And I, my hope is the way I see this is she can have some contribution to, uh, for example, that what's happening in this case in Georgia. Certainly, her the information she's uncovered will be very valuable there. But in addition, she will continue to dig out the crime and criminal activity that's occurred in this election and to clean up our election system even after the election. So I'm very hopeful about that as well. Well, she has to act pretty soon in terms of trying to salvage this election for, for the president. I'm, I'm optimistic she can stake her reputation by uh, some of the, the strong comments she's made in public without delivering anything on that. Uh, so, yes, I, 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 I keep waiting for um, the, the, the release of the Kraken. Uh, perhaps that'll happen. Um, I certainly do have a concern with future elections, but I think America... America will rise or fall in terms of the final result of the 2020 elections. Bob. Yeah, I certainly agree. Andy Joppa, I just genuinely appreciate it. Oh, by the way, when you go to my website, check check out, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that's the pull-down tab for Andy's columns. Andy, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Talk to you soon, Bob. My pleasure. Okay, coming up, we're going to visit with uh, Professor Larry Bell. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. Do you or a family member suffer from chronic pain in your knees, hips, or shoulders? Joint pain can be a nagging and serious problem requiring expert and compassionate care. I know I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. Until 2006, I was suffering debilitating pain and deformity in my knees. I couldn't enjoy biking or golf or even sleep without chronic pain as a constant companion. Thanks to Dr. George Markovich and the professional staff at the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, my pain is gone and I'm back to doing the activities I enjoy with no pain. I have a lifestyle I could only imagine. Imagine prior to knee surgery, and you can too. Call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. They will thoroughly evaluate your condition, provide personalized, state-of-the-art treatment, and help you relieve your pain and get back to your active lifestyle. At the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, your care will be professionally managed through every phase of your recovery. For an initial consultation, call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, located off Tamiami Trail in Bonita Springs, at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. 
You listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-389 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. Visit gulfshoreplayhouse.org. We have with us Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture. He's also the author of several books. His latest is uh, How Everything Happened, Including Us. Uh, he also writes a column for Newsmax. You can go to newsmax.com and just look for the commentary on the right-hand side of the website, and you'll see uh, Larry Bell, On Point. That's the name of his column. Professor, thank you so much. Um, thanks for having me on, and good morning. Good morning to you. Thanks so much for joining us. So, uh, Professor, oh, by the way, uh, Chuck Yeager died, and I'm guessing you had a relationship with him. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I missed what you said. Yeah, Chuck Yeager, I understand that he died at oh. age 97. And just because of your involvement with the space program, I wonder if you knew him. No, I know a lot of people, of course, that did know him. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a man, quite a marvelous story. Uh, uh, well, it was just a know, hunch. Such a, such a such a brave a pioneer. Yeah, it was, certainly was. And uh, it was just a guess because of your heavy involvement in the space program and all that we've th- the things that we've accomplished before it was kind of shut down during the Obama administration. So uh, your latest column, As Georgia Votes, So Goes the Nation. Maybe you could tell us about it. Well, everybody's, of course, you know, very concerned about what happens on January 5th with the runoff election in uh, Georgia, mm-hmm. and uh, that election will be very uh, uh, impactful to the future of this country because uh, currently we have, say we, uh, Congress has a uh, 48 uh, to, you know, 48 Democrats in the Senate versus uh, uh, 50, uh, you know, uh, Republicans. Mm-hmm. And uh, if Georgia picks up two more seats, it'll be a 50-50 split, which gives the vice president, which I guess presumably we have to say would be Kamala Harris, the uh, tie-breaking vote. And with that vote, with uh, a majority, even a one-vote majority, it would give the Senate the opportunity to um, do all kinds of dreadful things. They could eliminate the uh, 60-vote filibuster and uh, make it a simple majority so that with that, they can immediately then, without waiting for a a seat, they could see the Supreme Court. They could uh, add a to-be-determined number of justices. Mm -hmm. Constitution doesn't say that we have to have nine judges, so they they could do that. So they can pack the Supreme Court, and they virtually threatened to do so. They uh, can also really pack the Senate by having uh, Washington D.C. added, as well as Puerto Rico as states, mm-hmm. and pick up a, uh, four more reliable. Uh, Democratic senators, and uh, and with that, they could do quite a quite a lot of damage in terms of. Uh, uh, I'm sure they have a bunch of suits already lined up to go to the 
Supreme Court on the Second Amendment and gun control and and uh, all manner of, of legislation. So uh, it's, of course, a very pivotal race, and uh, we'll see how it how it you know lines up, and hopefully they can uh, put some brakes on some of the corruption that's been going on the voting. But Stacey Abrams been out very aggressively uh, soliciting uh, voters, yeah. including out of state, one. And of course, that's illegal. But it's it's the battle of you know of memory. And it, it's scary. Because where's the governor? Where's the secretary of you know the uh, attorney general in Georgia? They've just gone there. AOL. They're just gone and. Uh, uh, they don't seem to be taking an active role in this thing. Wouldn't you like to see some official in Georgia say, "We're going to stand up, and make sure this this election is going to be legal. It's going to be, it's going to go well. It's not going to have the issues that we had in the previous election." I don't see that. Well, it's a real head scratcher to understand why why the governor and the and the secretary of state haven't done that. The governor has the authority, and as, as I've seen him interviewed, he puts the onus on the Secretary of State and well, he should do it. And, and of course, Secretary of State has signed off on uh, Stacey Abrams' push some time ago. This was actually pre, pre-COVID period to allow this dual standard that doesn't require uh, signature validation on the write-in votes. And uh, that's been a real uh, problem, a real mm. uh, uh, policy, so he's been under you know, pressure. You wonder why, since they're both Republicans, uh, both the governor and Secretary of State are both Republicans, why they would buy into such a uh, such an agreement in the first place. And exactly with all the pressure, why not call the legislature and let them settle it? Uh, it's something rather strange. Secretary of State's this been a you know perfect uh, election, no nothing to see there, and we and they recounted the votes. Well, if you keep recounting the same votes without signature verification, yeah, you really haven't uh, uh, determined very much. You know, uh, and that's true. So it's all kind of happening in slow motion. And you're saying to yourself, "My God, they're going to have the same outcome." Without without inspections, without without some sort of supervision that we had in the presidential election, which would be, uh, you know, be it'd be stealing, and uh, hopefully that won't happen. But you're right; there's so much riding on this. By the way, you have to have some pride in uh, the case that Texas is filing, being a, uh, a resident of Houston, uh, in the Supreme Court. Well, I think it's a big deal, and I uh, I was looking at the Wall Street Journal earlier this morning, and. I was rather surprised that they made no mention of it. I couldn't find any huh. uh, any reference to it, and I know the Wall Street Journal has been pretty much like pretty much caving in on all of this, and uh, and there's still no information. Uh, a video has been released about the, you know about a Chinese professor in Beijing who was stating in a, in a television program there about how they had they had spies or agents or influence in the top of the U.S. government for many years. Oh, isn't that a... Until, until uh, the Trump administration came along. And and the gist of it, the big, big point was that, well, a couple, several big points, but one was that Wall Street was really much under their influence. Some of the top Wall Street people were very much under Chinese influence. And um, and, and uh, through through Wall Street, they could control you know, U.S. policy. Yeah. Scary stuff. And the reason I, you know, I'm sorry, the reason I mention that is because, of course, Wall Street Journal is representing a lot of big Wall Street interests. And and uh, they said that really came to a screeching halt with 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 the Trump administration. He he particularly talked about how easy it was to manipulate the previous uh, 
Obama and Biden administration on this. So yeah, uh, there's a lot of moving parts on this internationally as well as nationally, and you kind of wonder. And they they also had a very active campaign to to spy on, collude with uh, with congressional leaders. Indeed, and uh, so this is it's murky. It is indeed. Professor Larry Bell, I want to just refer to your book again. It's a great read. I read it. Uh, How Everything Happened, Including Us by Larry Bell. Professor, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Bob, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. My pleasure indeed. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. Uh, we have great guests for tomorrow's show, including William Yateman, Research Fellow at the... Uh, Oh, I'm sorry, that's, I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, that's actually for Friday's show. Tomorrow, we're going to have Michael Cannon. He's the uh, Director of, Re- of Health Studies at the Cato Institute. We'll also visit with Seton Motley, the founder and president of Less Government. Uh, I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. <laughs>